to the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. Those of you who have been following politics recently may be aware that last week was the first of the Democratic presidential debates. This involved all, I think, what is it, 19? 20, 20? Well, 20 made the debates. There are three others that did not make yeah, the debates. So, so we, we, we got a lot of people running in the race. But everyone had a chance to debate, not all on the same night, fortunately, but split between two nights with nine or ten candidates each. And it was really the first chance to hear in some depth what different people thought. And given that universal basic income has been getting more attention politically, and given that there is one candidate in the race who is specifically running on universal basic income, we thought it could make sense to do a post-debate episode to share perspectives on, on what actually happened there. So when we first decided to have a post-debate discussion, I was assuming this is pre-debate, that a lot of it would be about Andrew Yang because he is the UBI candidate in the race. But he was largely drowned out on the, the second night by the other nine candidates. He only got two or three questions asked of him, and he um, you know wasn't able to butt his way into any other questions. And he, he did, of course, get a question about UBI. He got a follow-up about inflation. So he was able to at least bring in the concept so it's it's there somewhere in the ethos, but you know, after the debate, I didn't hear anyone talking about basic income. Is it a good idea? UBI. So I think he will have more chances to take a national stage. And of course, he's on talk shows and podcasts and whatnot, including this one. But it wasn't quite the the big coming out moment that a lot of people were hoping for. Yeah, I think that in general introducing people to UBI is a tough thing to do because it is so different than what we have today. And in a debate with nine people on stage where in the best case, you're only getting a handful of minutes to talk generally, unless UBI or automation or poverty had been a dedicated section of the debate, it's going to be really tough to actually be able to explain that and, and make it make sense to people. And so, I mean, as you said, Andrew gave the short answer as to, to what the freedom dividend is, what his motivation is around it, but it seemed like that on its own may not have been enough to, to really cut through everything going on, particularly because there was so much going on. So, yeah, I, I, my sense was people didn't really have a good sense just from that as to what was up here. Yeah, there was a follow-up with another candidate, I want to say Michael Bennett, but I honestly don't remember at this point, um, about automation, that that was sort of the the knock-on, the next domino that fell from Yang's brief introduction to UBI. But then that kind of died. And I feel like, in general, the Democratic Party and certainly the Republican Party are not ready to move on from the status quo of work. There was no real discussion of the future of work, automation's coming, software, blah, blah, blah. AI, you know, you will occasionally hear those name checked, but not really seriously discussed as an issue that needs to be processed and and we need to have policy solutions to it. And so I think both candidates don't really have a lot to say about UBI in general, most of them. And also they don't really want to dive into that discussion. They don't want to say, no, you're wrong, that automation is not happening, but they also don't want to They'd just rather avoid the whole thing if they can and kind of stick to the the issues people are more familiar with, like healthcare, immigration, the stuff that did get a lot of play. I actually, my sense is there's been a shift in the last year or two that going back not too long ago, I, I do feel like future of work was a more of a hot topic. But I think 
for a number of reasons that shifted now. I think a lot of it is obviously immigration was a big thing because of the horrific things that are happening at the border right now. Climate change has started getting a lot more attention with the IPCC report and, and the push for the Green New Deal. And so that got, I mean, last time around, I got zero airtime. So getting even a, ch- a relatively small chunk of airtime was more than before. And I think healthcare has, has always been a, a big issue. And, and particularly now with the debate of Medicare for all versus something not quite that, I think that really was taking a lot of room. And so between it being crowded on the issue front and between being crowded out on the candidate front, yeah, I think it was just really, really hard to, to cut through in a way that hasn't necessarily been true in the past and, and maybe won't be true in the future. Yeah, I mean, there is, there's always a lot to talk about. <laughs> and like, it's, all of these issues are are alive and important. And um, you can understand why by something that's a little bit fringe sounding like UBI is not going to get a lot of airtime, especially if it needs a lot of explanation. And I, I have resisted uh, <laughs> making any comparisons between my own run for assembly and and what Andrew Yang is doing because, you know, they're they're just on entirely different scales. But I, it brought back some memories of trying to show that you know, like I have things to say on healthcare and on housing and blah, blah, blah. But also I won't really want to talk about UBI and try to answer all your questions at the same time. And I had more airtime generally than, than he did in, in our candidate forums. But, but yeah, to try to introduce a new issue on top of everything else while seeming like you still have things to say on everything else is, is not easy. Yeah, I, I also think that there's a question as to what is the right way to broach it. And b- because Yang's candidacy has focused so much on this as a response to automation, it makes it a natural thing to talk about if the debate is about automation, but it does make it harder to bring up in the context of other issues. And that's where I think if there was, if, if the primary explicit motivation was more about poverty or systemic change around our system, there's ways to work it in around healthcare, around climate change, around anything economic, certainly. And so potentially that gives you more opportunities to work it in, although it depends, again, as uh, who's being asked questions and, and how the conversation goes on the stage. Yeah, well, one place where it kind of came in in a blink and you'll miss it sort of way is that two candidates, uh, Pete Buttigieg and John Delaney, who are on separate nights, both brought up the idea of a carbon dividend. And they just, they said it and they moved on. They didn't make it a a core part of what they were trying to argue for. But sometimes I feel like there are ways that a basic income could almost sneak in. And it wouldn't be a full freedom dividend, thousand dollars a month kind of thing, but you know, maybe a couple hundred dollars a month or you could maybe get it to that level in through a policy that doesn't feel like basic income and doesn't bring up all these issues of future of work uh, will there still be jobs? Will what will happen to unions? All these things, and so I, you know, I don't think that the carbon dividend idea has a ton of uh, cachet right now, but at least it's getting brought up in the conversation and by by one leading candidate in Buttigieg. Yeah, it was nice to to see that being brought up, showing support from from certain parties. I think, unfortunately, with the way that the climate debate has been playing out. It's you've really gotten different camps now of people who are supporting some sort of carbon pricing system, maybe or maybe not with a dividend, and people who are calling for more radical reform like a Green New Deal. And for the life of me, I don't see a reason why these things couldn't potentially work together. 
that these should just be different tools in the toolkit. But it does seem like it's being set up politically as, as one or the other. And so I think that's creating some hurdles to having that be something that can really build a consensus, since it is one of the rare policies that actually does have Republican support today. Uh, but just generally having more of a conversation around that, I think is exciting. I think the other thing that was that is similar in some ways to a basic income that was brought up is Kamala Harris Lift Act, which we've talked about this on the show before, but she was really pushing that hard. That was what she opened with. That's what she said her number one priority would be if she were elected president. So this is clearly the thing for her, at least for now. And to see someone having a cash transfer policy be at the center of their campaign is is exciting in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I will sometimes tag politicians as people who I think probably think basic income is a good idea, but don't want to go full Andrew Yang about it. And I wonder if Kamala is Kamala Harris is in that camp, uh, just because the LIFT Act is... It doesn't challenge the idea that working people are deserving and everyone else has to figure something out, but it get it comes right up to the line of like if you as long as you work a little bit, you get your five hundred dollars a month if you know if you're in these very broad income thresholds. And it's it's put in a way that that sounds like it could be coming out of Joe Biden's mouth. you know, Joe Biden obviously being a relatively centrist candidate in in this field who um we did a whole episode about how he came out against basic income. And so, and obviously Kamala Harris is a very, um, she's she's one of the front runners, you know, one of the five most likely candidates, I'd say, to get the nomination. And so it's one of these things where, yes, we have the whole Andrew Yang discussion, which feels a bit to the side of things, but the LIFT Act is very central and every, every candidate had something about what they're going to do for working Americans. And hers is the thing you can do for working Americans that's about as close as you can get to a basic income. Yeah, and, and I think what you just said about working Americans is important because something, I, I didn't even realize this actually for a long time, but in presidential debates, we don't actually talk about poverty. We talk about providing support for people who are either middle class or just below middle class, but there's really no focus at all on people who are really, really struggling in society. And that's something, most recently, I would say the, the folks who have been pushing hardest on this is the Poor People's Campaign. They actually just had their own presidential forum oh, a couple weeks ago in D.C. and had a number of the candidates for president come and speak there. And coming out of that, they, they actually asked every single candidate, will you commit to working to make sure there is actually a presidential debate on poverty? And for them, poverty, it, it is it's poverty connected to everything. That they they actually have their their four pillars that they focus on, which is poverty itself, but also systemic racism, ecological devastation, and the war economy. And they talk about that as these things are interlinked. This all works together at the systemic level. And I think that's something, it, it is very rare you hear candidates actually talk about the systemic aspects of a lot of these things. I think you're starting to hear it a bit more than in the past, particularly when it comes to racism. But generally, we, we look at problems one by one. And if actually, there was one question by Chuck Todd that, that really emphasized this, which is, first day as president, what is the one thing you do? Which inherently, if you actually want to do systemic change, that's, right. there's no yeah, right answer to that question. Yeah. yeah. But I think that, yeah, having having some sort of forum that you can really focus on on poverty and, and how that relates to everything 
would really be, I mean, that could be a very provocative and productive conversation. It makes sense to me why they don't, because the very poor aren't any sort of real voting block. I mean, those people, the turnout rate is abysmally low. And so you don't have your constituency base that, that you're playing towards. But it's a real shame that that's not more of a conversation that's happening. Yeah, you've got that double whammy of it's not, a, yeah, the turnout rate is super low among the very poor. And also it you do get very quickly into these issues of deservingness, which, you know, I think we would agree uh, shouldn't be an issue, but but it's still, the zeitgeist is still kind of in this mindset of if you have a job and you're struggling, like, okay, you deserve help. Like, you deserve health care, you deserve a better wage, et cetera, et cetera. If you don't have a job, then, like, you know, what are you doing? Get off your butt and, like, you know, go, go help yourself. Like, learn to code or something. And I, I think when we are talking about people who, you know, maybe have no money or, like, less than $1,000 in their bank account, it immediately triggers for a lot of people for this kind of this status quo, uh, you know, a lot of union members, uh, this idea of like, well, you know, I, I work every day and, you know, I, I, I train for this, et cetera, et cetera. And it creates an us versus them kind of thing, which, you know, comes up again and again with basic income. So there are, are ways in which we sort of trigger the deservingness impulse to think that, you know, everyone is deserving of a, a basic livelihood that kind of skirt around the idea of jobs and work and you're only deserving if you're working but it's you still have to kind of sneak attack that that idea and not just say that everyone is deserving of a basic livelihood that's still a very controversial statement one more more element of this that i wanted to bring in was if you look back at 2008 when we had you know largely came down to barack obama and hillary clinton single payer was not really on the table it, it was not not an issue that people single payer healthcare i should say is not not something either of them were proposing or getting all that close to proposing. Fast forward to 2016 when it comes down to Hillary Clinton versus Bernie Sanders, and that is the debate. And it turns out lots of people are very pro-universal healthcare in some form. And now that, that we're having this discussion in 2020, it's at least 50-50 candidates saying that they want universal health care that's just the government takes care of it, and some candidates saying, like, well, we want to get there eventually, or you know, like some kind of hybrid. And I could see basic income getting there eventually. It will need some kind of moment where, you know, Andrew Yang or someone catches fire or somehow it gets down to whatever, Joe Biden versus Andrew Yang, and all of a sudden this issue is getting a lot of attention. I don't think it's going to happen in 2020, but, you know, 2024, 2028, maybe this will be something where it's like a third of the party is saying cash dividends for everyone and the other two thirds are saying, oh, well, maybe not for everyone. It'll be that kind of discussion. Yeah, I have at multiple times in the past had conversations with people comparing the political trajectory of universal basic income today to single payer eight years ago. Because as you say, you don't have to go back very far and single payer, A, most people had never heard of that. And B, it was a non-starter. It was just, if you support a single payer, you were fringe crazy. Yeah, you're a socialist. Yeah. And night and day now from where we are today to then. And so I do think that with Universal Basic Income, there is that potential. It's certainly not a guarantee, but it's a possibility. But I think that given we're not there yet, the more you can present and position 
UBI is something in terms that people already are familiar with, maybe the better. And I, I think, again, we can look to single payer, which everyone now says Medicare for all, which is not actually correct. If you, if you look at what the proposals for single payer are, they aren't just taking Medicare and giving it to everyone. They're actually doing a lot more than that. But talking about it that way makes it make sense to people because everyone knows Medicare, people like Medicare. And so saying, all right, now everyone gets this. So, I mean, that goes back to a previous discussion we had, which is, should we be saying Social Security for all and presenting UBI that way? Because that is going to make sense to people as far as where you get down the road, when, when people start to hear the details and whether that matches up with expectation, that's another question. But it does provide you with an easy way to kind of introduce that general concept. Yeah, and we can always, the, the great thing about Medicare for all is that Medicare is popular and it's cost effective. And Social Security has some of those same, um, those same associations of people like it and it's, they take it somewhat for granted that it's, it's there. And there are other associations of paying into it and of it being for retirement. But, you know, Medicare, I, I think, had those associations not that long ago. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm starting to toy with that idea more and more of Social Security for All. All right, that'll do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davidson. And if you like what you hear, please do rate and review us on the podcast service of your choice and tell your friends about it. We are always looking for new listeners. We'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.